0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be continuing a sermon series that we began last week called Mission Prep. It's a sermon series that is helping us understand how God is preparing us for the mission that He has called us to, the mission of following Jesus, bringing glory to Him, and inviting others to do the same. Now, last week we saw from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that one of the ways that God prepares us for the mission that He has called us to is by comforting us in the midst of our affliction so that we might be able to comfort others with the comfort that we have received, Uh, Today, we're going to continue our discussion of how God prepares us as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4, as we see a little bit about how God also prepares us by clarifying and calibrating our expectations and our motivations as we are on mission with Him. So we're going to see that today. But before we do that, I, I want to just ask a question and begin to set the table for us to look at this set of verses by having us reflect on how important the messenger is to the message that we receive. Now, our culture has answered that question, how important is the messenger to the message? Well, our culture would say that it's pretty important. So that if a golfer is sponsored by one company and that golfer moves from one tour to the next... The sponsor might say, we're going to withhold our funds and tell you not to wear our stuff or use our clubs because we don't want to be associating you, a messenger, with our message or product. It also happens in entertainment where different entertainers and performers will have their sponsorships revoked when they behave in such a way that the company can no longer stand behind them. See, our our culture has said that the messenger matters to the message. Is that true for us as followers of Jesus Christ? If, if we are the messenger and God's truth is the message, do our lives really matter? Well, friends, we're going to look at that today as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. And what we're going to see is that, in fact, our motivations and our lives do matter, Connected to the message that we share, we'll see today why and how we might apply that. We'll do so as we look at these verses together. So, if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn to Second Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse twelve. The apostle Paul is writing to his friends in Corinth, and this is what he says: He says, "For our boast is this: the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom." But by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope that you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Now, friends, in these many verses, we're going to see three things today that will help us understand how our lives matter, how the messenger matters with the message. We're going to see it in three movements today. So what do we see? The first thing that we need to see is this. Misunderstandings happen. Misunderstandings happen. This really sets the table for these verses. There was a misunderstanding that had occurred between Paul and the church in Corinth. Well, what was that misunderstanding? Well, we need to look a little more in-depth at these verses to see it. Let's review Paul's history with the Corinthian church, something we began talking about last week. Paul, together with his friends, had traveled around the Mediterranean Sea on his second missionary journey and had landed in Corinth and had helped start the very first church in that city. They had stayed there a considerable period of time, about 18 months, and they had seen an active congregation begin. After his time in ministry there, Paul took off, but his heart, at least a part of his heart, remained there in Corinth. And so he writes them a letter, the letter of... 1st Corinthians. And so he writes them this letter, and in that letter he is encouraging them, but also he is challenging a number of the things, probably some things that he had seen during his time of 18 months in ministry there, but also things that had been conferred to him by others who had visited the city. So Paul is continuing to pastor this church, even as he is doing so from a distance. But apparently that letter of 1st Corinthians was not responded to in a full and proper way by the church in Corinth. So, Paul didn't just send a letter. Paul came back. He made a second visit to the city of Corinth, and he spent some time in ministry there. And it was a hard and painful experience as he called them to obedience. We don't know exactly what the issues were that they were dealing with, but we know that the church in Corinth was erring in certain ways. And so, Paul goes and challenges them to bring their lives in line with the light of the gospel. But they resisted, and so the visit was very painful. Paul said at that time, it's, it's my hope and it's my, 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 my de- determination to come back through this city at a later date for us to have some time together. He called it a second experience of grace. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to talk about it, isn't it? You know, we had a first service today at 830. So the 945 service from now on we will call the second experience <laughs> of grace. And then we have at 11 o'clock a third experience of grace. Um, Paul said he had a desire to make it back to that city and spend some time in ministry there with them. But that's a visit that didn't happen. Paul actually changed his plans. He intended to come back quickly for a third visit, but he did not do so. And instead, he sent them a letter. A letter that he calls a sternly worded letter. Challenging them on their persistence in disobedience. This is something that is hinted at in two different spots in this verses that we read earlier. He said, I refrain from coming to you again in Corinth. And I made up my mind not to make another painful visit. So he said he was going to come. And then he didn't come. Instead he sends a letter. But the letter that he sent apparently accomplished some good. That painful, stern letter helped the people begin to get it. He he said they partially understood what he was trying to communicate. I think by saying that, what he's saying is, you are understanding now what I'm calling you to do, a sin that I'm asking you to walk away from, a leadership issue I want you to address. You partially understand it. They got the content right, but there was a misunderstanding related to what was going on in the interior of Paul's life. They were misunderstanding his motivations, so they partially got it. They partially got it. Now, how is it that a group of people who were as connected to Paul as they were could find themselves misunderstanding the leader of their church? How could that happen? Well, We see that they were misunderstanding as we look at verses 12 to 14 and then in verse 17. Paul here is is addressing their concerns. And so we kind of have to extrapolate based on what Paul says, maybe what some of the accusations or misunderstandings were all about. See, they were possibly thinking that Paul was making his decisions on the basis of earthly wisdom. In other words, Paul, you said you were going to come, you didn't come, so you must not have come because you talked to your leadership consultant, your leadership guru, who laid out a flowchart and a plan and looked at your calendar and said, you can't come. Or perhaps they were saying, Paul, you said you were going to come, but then you didn't come, and a lot of what you say is real wordy and you're kind of obtuse and hard to understand. They only partially understood it. Or maybe they just thought, hey, Paul, you said you were going to come and you didn't are you vacillating are you kind of flaky can you not be counted on are you untrustworthy see the 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 corinthians had an experience with paul but they were drawing some wrong conclusions they were misunderstanding his heart his motivations what lay behind his actions now why do misunderstandings occur how can they develop Well, we we can think of this in light of this passage, but I think these principles have application for all of us. See, the Corinthians saw that Paul's plans had changed, and they assumed that if he was changing his plans, that it was because his character was changing. But that wasn't true. It could be that there was another reason for Paul to change his plans. Not because he was somehow weak in character or untrustworthy, but perhaps he was making a wise decision to bring that change. Sometimes a change of plans does not equal a change in character. A second reason for the misunderstanding happened because there was more going on than they knew. We saw last week that Paul talked about his experience while he was away. He said that his experience in Asia was a sentence of death. Paul was going through some very challenging times, some very trying times that no doubt would have impacted his availability and ability to travel. Perhaps he changed his plans just because life was really full. There was more going on than what the Corinthians knew. Paul didn't have a CNN team following him and broadcasting it. This was the day before that. There were things going on that they didn't know about. And it caused them to draw a wrong understanding. But a third possibility is that they just misunderstood his motivations. They knew some things that he was doing and they assumed they understood why he was doing them. When in fact, they were wrong. And so a misunderstanding developed between Paul and the Corinthians. Let me ask you, have you ever been misunderstood? let me drive it a little more clear. Have you ever been misunderstood as you took a step to serve or minister to someone else? Have your motivations ever been misunderstood? Have your actions ever been misinterpreted? Friends, if you led a Sunday school class or any ministry during the pandemic, my guess is you have been misunderstood. My my guess is that if you have ever gone to confront a friend who was in the midst of a sin, that you have been misunderstood. My guess is if you have ever dealt with anything weighty or challenging as it pertains to your faith, whether it was in your family or your business or your church, my guess is you have been misunderstood. How do we process that? How do we deal with that? Well, because misunderstandings happen, we need to have a grid for how we think through this. Warren Wiersbe helps us a little bit. He says, "If you live to please people, misunderstandings will depress you. But if you live to please God, you can face misunderstandings with faith and courage." Friends, if you have ever been misunderstood as you have reached out to minister or serve to someone else, guess what? You're in amazing company. Paul himself was misunderstood. And you know who else was misunderstood? Jesus Christ. People saw what Jesus did and they said, the devil must be inspiring you. Now that is a misunderstanding. Misunderstandings happen. So two questions. The first is, have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever been misunderstood as you have reached out in service or ministry to others. Second question, have you ever misunderstood someone else? This gets a little closer to home, doesn't it? When I'm talking about you being misunderstood, you're like, yeah, preach it, pastor. (laughs) Go for it. I am misunderstood. World, understand me. But we think that we are clairvoyant. We think that we fully understand everyone else's motivations. We think we know what all is going on in their lives. And so we make determinations about people's motivations in light of their responses. Friends, as we look at these verses, may we approach them with a humility, not just with a desire for others to understand us, but also with a humility that says there are maybe things going on that we are not aware. Misunderstandings happen. Well, in light of that, what are, how does Paul respond? How does Paul respond to their misunderstanding? Well, he responds in, in a couple of different ways. The first thing he does is he reminds them and us that our motivations matter. Our motivations matter. What motivates our actions matter. Now, the Corinthians had correct information And that information was that Paul said he was going to come, and then he didn't. And because they had that correct information, they made some assumptions. They began to judge Paul. And their assumptions went something like this. You said you were going to come, and you didn't come, so you are untrustworthy, Paul. We can no longer trust you, and therefore we might be a little skeptical of the message that you're sharing. But not only that... I think that there's evidence inside of these verses that would say that they weren't just saying that he was untrustworthy, but that also they were accusing him of being unloving. In other words, Paul, you decided not to come because you have another church that you're interested in. There's another group of people that you're caring for. You don't care about us. You don't love us. You sent us a letter. I mean, come on, you said you were going to come. We wanted to have coffee, not read a book. That was the concern, and those were the accusations. That was the misunderstanding that had occurred. So Paul begins to address those concerns. And he wants them to know what really motivated his change in plans. Now, when he does that, he, he calls to the witness stand two different witnesses to address and verify his motives. Who are those witnesses that he calls Well, the first witness that he calls to the stand is his own conscience. He says, on the interior of me, if if I could just open my heart and you could see my conscience, you would see that my conscience is clear and clean about the decision I made not to come. He says, if you were to see my conscience and know what is going on on the inside of me, you would know that I have behaved in this world with simplicity, not duplicity. I do what I say that I was going to do, and if if a change happened, it happened for a good reason. He said, I've behaved with a, a godly sincerity, not trying to mislead you in any way. He said, I made my decision not on the basis of earthly wisdom, not on the basis of a leadership guru or consultant, but he said, I made my decision influenced by the grace of God. God himself led me to the change. And he says, This is how I've lived my life, and this is especially, supremely so, how I have behaved in this situation regarding not visiting you again. Paul says his, his conscience taking the stand would testify that his motivation was pure. But he calls a second witness, not just calling his own conscience, but who else does he call? He calls none other than God himself. In other words, in order to vindicate him, he says, and now I would like to call to the witness stand, God. And God takes the stand. He says, I am so confident of my intentions as it related to my decisions regarding you, Corinthians, that I believe that one day when we stand before God and all is known, even as we are fully known, that you will see and understand my true motivation in my decision." That on the day of our Lord Jesus, we will boast together. We will agree on this on that day. And in verse, seven, or verse 23, it's even more clear. He says, I call God to witness against me. That's kind of strange language for our purpose. But he says, God, if, if I'm lying, I'm dying, right? God, tell me what's going on. If I'm am not speaking the truth, then you correct me in this moment. That's what Paul says is saying. Paul calls his conscience and God to the witness stand to clarify his motivation. So what was his motivation? Why did he do what he did? Why did he change his plan? Well, he tells us in verse 24. I love this. He changed his plan not because of his own agenda, but because of a desire to develop the joy of the Corinthians. Paul said, I didn't come not because of something about me. I didn't come because of something about you. Paul said, it is my desire. I make my decisions in ministry on the basis of your joy. He says he did not make his decision to not come because he was trying to issue some kind of power play, to lord it over them, to be the guy in charge, to keep them on their toes. Paul says, that's nonsense. I didn't not come because of some power play. I came because of a desire for your joy. And I didn't come because I believed that if I came again, Paul said, it would just lead to a painful encounter. He's like, we just had a painful face-to-face. We don't need another one. It's as if Paul was saying, I thought I would take a different tact. The goal was your joy, the development of your faith. So rather than coming and beating my head against the wall again, I decided to write you a letter, a, a sternly worded letter with a desire that it would lead to a change in your life. Look at what he says in, in 2 Corinthians 2, 2 through 4. He says, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul says, you want to know my motivation? Get the letter back out. Those aren't raindrops, friends. Those are tears. Paul said, I loved you. Therefore, I wrote to you with the desire that the letter might accomplish what my visit didn't, which is you recognizing the sin that you were partaking in, that you might walk away from that and back into the light of Christ. And apparently, they got it, right? They partially understood. They got that part of the message. They began to correct their behavior. They just didn't get the full truth. They didn't understand his motivation. So Paul writes them this letter to fill in the gap. I did what I did for your joy. I did what I did out of a love for you. Friends, that is a a wonderful grid for us to think through related to how we are reaching out in ministry. Why do you serve? Why do you serve? Why do you do what you do? Why do you teach that Sunday school class? Why do you hold the door open as people enter on a Sunday? Why do you work in children's ministry or student ministry or college ministry? Why are we serving at all on the stage with the worship team or those operating the slides in the back? If, if we're doing any of those things for our own agenda as a power play, to be in charge, to be in control, to sing the songs that we want, if we're doing any of those kinds of things with a selfish motive, we need to have our motivations checked because our motivations matter. But Paul said his motivation was not to make a personal power play, His motivation was for the joy of the Corinthians because of his great love for them. So before you take a step into ministry, we need to pause and ask the question, how is our heart? Do a heart check. What are our motivations? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we reaching out to confront this person? Is it just to be right? Is it just to win the argument? Or are we pursuing their ultimate joy? Is it because of our great love for them and desire for them to live in light of the gospel that we are communicating? Or are we reaching out in our own pretense? We need to ask ourselves the question what are our motivations in serving others? And then we need to ask the really painful question. Would our understanding of those motivations stand up under investigation? Could we honestly say to those that we serve, do an audit of my conscience. Do, do, a, do an audit, God, of my life and see if what I'm saying is, is, is really true. Friends, are we really operating in service and ministry to others out of a desire for their joy and out of a great love for others? Or are we doing things merely to build our own platform or to gain our own attaboys, whatever it might be? You know it's interesting thinking about doing things for the 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 joy of others doesn't mean we don't ever say hard things doesn't mean that right paul said hard things he said things that that hurt but paul did not do things that would harm them he had their best interest in mind in light of the truth of the gospel so he was willing to deal with a little bit of hurt that they might live their lives in the direction of Christ. But he was certain for his motivation and his reason for his responses. Are we? See, friends, our, our motivations matter. But there's a, a, a second thing that he says. Not just that our motivations matter, but he also makes the, the, this, the, the argument that our integrity matters as well. The integrity of the messenger does, in fact, impact the reception of the message. That's really what he's getting at. See, they thought that he was making this decision because he was unloving and untrustworthy. And Paul goes out of his way to argue that he was both of those things... Because he wanted them to receive the message that he was proclaiming, which was a message from an absolutely trustworthy and loving God. So, where do we see this idea that integrity matters inside of his response? Well, we see him begin to develop the idea in verse 18, and he anchors it to God himself, the character of God. He says, The God that we are serving is faithful, he is absolutely faithful. When he says he will do something, he does it. Absolutely, 100%. You can trust him, Paul says. And this God who is faithful has demonstrated his faithfulness in an epic way through the person of Jesus Christ. These verses that we read sound a lot like that song we sang earlier today too. Yes and amen? See, Jesus Christ, the Son of God whom Sylvanus. And Timothy and Paul proclaim, who we proclaim here at Wildwood. Friends, this God is a God who is faithful. So that when he says yes, it's always a yes. And God has promised lots of things. When you look at the Old Testament and the promises that God has, when you look at the New Testament and the promises that God has made, when you look at the book of Revelation and the promises for the future, the Bible is a book full of promises. Promises that God, in fact, plans to make good on. And he will make good on all of them, he says, in Christ. In Christ. Now, this idea of God making good on his promises in Jesus is an idea that we need to meditate on for a moment. And I want to read this quote from Paul Barnett because it really helps us reflect on this concept a little more. It says, since Christ is the fulfillment, God's yes, to all of God's numerous promises, It follows that the Old Testament, where the promises are made, really makes sense only when read with Christ in mind. Christ is the end to which the Old Testament is pointed, the goal toward which it moves. To read the Old Testament without reference to Christ is like reading a mystery novel with the final chapter torn out. All the clues are scattered throughout the story, but without the finale, no one could be sure of the explanation of the mystery or the identity of the one in whom all interest has been aroused. The gospel of the Son of God, as proclaimed by Paul, is the final chapter of God's story, which explains all, and without which everything which proceeds would remain enigmatic and up in the air. Friends, in Jesus, the faithfulness of God is demonstrated from front to back, alpha to omega, beginning to end. Jesus is absolutely faithful, trustworthy, and can be counted on. But look at what Paul does next. After asserting that Jesus is absolutely faithful, where does he go next? Well, he talks about this faithful God establishes us. He guarantees a relationship with us. He he, he sets us up who are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then God has given us a resource to enable us to live a life that is modeled after his character. That produces his fruit. A life that has been anointed with the Spirit. A life that has been sealed with the Spirit. A life that has been guaranteed by the Spirit. All of those things are indications of the faithfulness of God. See, the logic goes like this. God is faithful. Therefore, those who represent God, the messengers, should live a life of faithfulness, reflecting the reality of the God whom we serve. And God makes that possible through the work of the Spirit in our lives. Now, It is because of what God has done for us in Christ that through Christ we might be able to say that our lives can add an amen to what he is doing. Kent Hughes helps us understand this concept a little more when he says this. He says, because Christ is the grand consummating yes, God's unambiguous ultimate yes, he is the ground and the fulcrum of all Christian ethics. Now, this statement is is real flowery and we don't necessarily use those those words all that often but i think that there's a very important truth that hughes is talking about here what he's basically saying is this our lives as followers of jesus are to move in a certain direction and to live a certain way because of the god who we are serving and relating to Why do we live a life of truth? Why do we speak the truth? Why does that matter? Because the God who we represent is a God of truth. Why do we need to remain faithful to those in our lives? Because we serve a God who is faithful. Why is it that we should have a a, a sexual life that reflects God's principles and his holiness? It's because the God that we serve is a holy God. Friends, we are called to live a life in light of, grounded upon, with the fulcrum of, the identity of who Jesus Christ really is. It's the principle behind our decision and our ethics. Hughes goes on and says this. He says, the power of integrity. This is so needed today. We need preachers whose sermons are like thunder because their lives are like lightning. Friends, I I would say that that's not just true of preachers. We need Christians whose lives thunder the truth of God as we share it with others, but whose situations are illuminated by a life of integrity following Christ. Friends, our integrity matters. I don't know all of the situations of what you're dealing with, The things that are going on, but my guess is if if I were to ask you, do you want your life to be lived on mission for Christ this year? Most of you would say yes. So what does that mean? I mean, we might fantasize about a friend coming to faith in Christ or, or, or a, a group that we're among being blessed by our presence, but those are ends. How do we, how do we get there? In part, how we get there is by living a life of integrity, not just knowing the thunder, but living the lightning. How would your life look if you were following the integrity of who God is in every area in the days ahead? Friends, this is what we're called to we're called to follow Him with motivations clarified with His purpose. And with a life of integrity lived out in the presence of others. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to look at these verses today. Thank you for just the reality that in light of this, we are broken people. Our motivations are not always pure. And our lives have been dotted and marred and scarred by by so many wrong decisions. But we are so thankful, dear Lord, as we gather here today reminded of these perspectives that we also can be reminded of the grace that is found in christ of the forgiveness that is available in him and of the spirit empowerment that follows trusting in you dear lord may may we be a people cleansed of our sin empowered by your spirit who live not looking back with regret but live looking forward with integrity and purity of motivation following you in the year ahead We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.